0: All right, take a seat gentlemen, find a seat, take a seat, those are weird metaphors for sitting in a chair, find a seat, take a seat, yeah, see that sounds so harsh, that's why we use metaphors, anyway, how's everyone doing, who had the best Christmas? Jesus. Mm. Oh. Nice try, Tori. You tried. Stop, Cameron. Get out of here. I, I mean, he didn't really, I guess he invented it. It was like a, anyway. Um, so no one had a good Christmas? Who got? Who thinks they got, like, probably the best gift, though? And, all right, we all got Jesus. But let's talk about, like, you know, the Who got the best gift? Levi, what did you get for Christmas? They just give you straight money? Oh, man. Okay. Well, on that note, since we're all depressed from Christmas, we're going to pep everybody up today. We're talking about Job. (laughs) Launch into the new year with this perspective. Last week... You know, it was Christmas, so we really tried to pep everybody up by talking about how everything was meaningless, vanity, with Ecclesiastes. Now we're going to talk about Job, because we've been in a series on the wisdom literature. And um, just to remind us all, wisdom literature consists in three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And each of them kind of offer a different perspective on answering what does it mean to live the good life, right? How do you live well in God's world? And what we saw with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is they both propose that if you want to live a good life, then you fear the Lord and keep his commandments, right? But what was really interesting was how Ecclesiastes and Proverbs differed and how they arrived at that conclusion. So what I want you to talk amongst yourselves, we don't have tables today, but this is your opening question, then we'll talk about it and watch a video. Answer this question, how does Proverbs and Ecclesiastes differ in the way they lead you to that conclusion, that conclusion of fear God and keep his commandments? How does Proverbs and Ecclesiastes differ in getting you to that conclusion? Go, find the answer. That's good. So this is the way that that um, that I like to think of it. Okay, and this may be helpful for y'all. But basically, Proverbs is seeking to instill this rich foundation for you to seek and value wisdom. So it points you to what we call the clear moral logic of the universe. You guys remember what the moral logic of the universe was? Basically, what you desire will turn into your character, which creates consequences. And this is how the universe works. If you desire wisdom, it will create in you integrity, and then that will lead to good, prosperous circumstances. If you desire selfishness, it creates in you pride and wickedness and leads to bad circumstances. And Proverbs is basically a collection of of these sayings, these Proverbs, that show that. Right? So this is something that we're going to clarify real quick up front because it is very important for the book of Job. This is what we call the retribution principle or better known as RP. The righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. This is very important to the Old Testament understanding, Israelite understanding of how the world works. The righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. This is what Proverbs is trying to show you, that this is one of the clear things of how the world works. And Ecclesiastes goes about it more of a negative way. So as As Proverbs was more positive in saying this is how it works, Ecclesiastes was more negative. It broke down all of these things to talk about life's random chance, the fact that we're all going to die, that time is something out of control. So this is how I summarize it. While Proverbs was more positive in pointing us to value and benefit wisdom, Ecclesiastes was more negative in pointing us to the vanity of life under the sun. And both of these things led the authors to conclude that the only thing you're left to do is to fear God and keep His commandments. So, um, again, this is part of the wisdom literature offering different perspectives of the same conclusion. And it's really interesting. It's sometimes hard to digest and understand. But I think it, it shows you kind of the, the wise truth that it is. The deep, profound truth that it is. It comes at it from different angles. Okay, So we're going to look at the last book today. And that is the book of Job, probably the most familiar to you guys. Has anyone actually read through the whole book of Job? Yes? A few of you. Okay. It's better than last week. No one had read Ecclesiastes. But Job is like how many chapters? Anyone know? Like 42. Did someone say that? Okay. Jackson Hearn. Um, But it's mostly poetry, but we all kind of are familiar with the story. But it's actually a very difficult book to understand. So we're going to try and work our way through it today. And uh, first, we'll watch this video. Can you cue up that video for me, Cameron?
1: There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just.
2: Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, Yeah, he said the world isn't always fair. That life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke.
1: And this makes you wonder, Okay, well, is God wise and
2: just? Exactly, and so it is that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. Alright, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they are all there reporting for duty.
1: And God points out this guy Job, his servant. Showing how righteous and good he is.
2: And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who's this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So
1: he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job.
2: And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so.
1: The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter
2: 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals this devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was
1: born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next
2: 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just.
1: Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting
2: God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes
1: in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan.
2: Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see.
1: Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they
2: are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a
1: part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about?
2: It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions.
1: And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of
2: complexity even if he wanted to.
1: So where does this leave us?
2: Well it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord.
1: But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No, I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a
2: punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why, but what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom.
1: And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series.
2: These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the
0: Lord. All right, so I gave you a handout so that you don't have to take all the notes on the screen. James, I know that you always try very hard to get all the notes down on the screen. Um, So you guys can more just kind of interact and... uh, Also, stow those away in your Bible. I think those can be helpful if you're ever in these books. You're like, oh, here's a handy outline to help me. Okay? All right, so the book of Job. We're going to try and make our way quickly through this. There's a lot that we could go over here. I spent all week reading and studying the book of Job. There's a lot of good stuff in here. But I want us to kind of get... The general gist that will help us study the book more in depth later, okay? So, this is what we're looking at. Job. The perspective in regards to kind of the differing perspectives of the wisdom literature is that Job is kind of like the withered old man. He's seen a lot. He's um, different than kind of the brilliant brilliant young teacher who's a bit arrogant in how the world works. Different than Ecclesiastes, although more like Ecclesiastes than Uh, Proverbs. But it is a different perspective nonetheless. This is kind of the basic structure of the book. It's four main movements. And the large uh, sections are these dialogues or speeches that happen between Job and his friends and Job and God. And uh, then there's that prologue and epilogue. You guys know prologues and epilogues? You ever read those in the books? Those are very important. Uh, But the main question of the book, and this is important, is God wise and just? This is what the book is trying to answer for you. Notice it's not trying to answer for you why suffering happens. It's not going to tell you why bad things happen. A lot of people go to the book of Job trying to understand why bad things happen to good people. The book of Job is not going to answer that for you. A lot of people think this is about Job as a righteous man being kind of vindicated or justified in being righteous. That's not what the book is about either. This book is putting God on trial. This book is trying to understand, is God wise and just? From the outset, we're going to see that the challenger, the hasatan or whatever, who comes forward, he's challenging God's policies of the world. He's challenging God's wisdom. And at the end, it's God and his speech that concludes the book. And that's just pointing us that this is about God and his policies. Okay, so it's very important with the book of Job that we're asking the right questions. Because if we don't ask the right questions, we won't get the right answers. Or the answers that we see in the book will seem foreign or strange to us. So as we look through this, that is our question. Is God wise and just? And what we'll see, I'll I'll give you the answer up front. Because you already saw the video. We're going to see that God is wise and powerful Therefore, that's why we can trust his justice. And it's going to show that the dominant force of the universe is not necessarily what Proverbs talked about, the retribution principle and justice. The dominant force of the universe is actually God's wisdom. So, So just we'll frame it this way. Like Proverbs says the righteous prosper, right, and the wicked suffer. God says that's not always the case. His world doesn't always work by that principle because he controls the world the principle doesn't control the world. Does that make sense? So God is going to continually drive the questions from being about justice and what's good and bad to who am I and I am, I'm wise. So this is all about wisdom, not necessarily about justice. We'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go, okay? So, Let's look at the prologue. This is a very interesting passage Um, in the beginning of the book of the the Job. In the beginning of the book, um, there's this divine council, people called uh, the sons of God and and whatnot. Um, But we also see this introduction of Job, and it's very important how he's identified. He's called blameless, he's upright, and he's someone who feared God. And he was also prosperous. He had all this wealth and possessions. And so Job is like the ideal person of the good life. Like if Proverbs was going to use someone as an example who was living out proverbs, Job would be that person. So there's nothing wrong with Job. Job is righteous. Um, a big point throughout the book is Job will not deserve any of the suffering or calamity that comes upon him. And this is very important that you remember this, that Job does not deserve any of the suffering he gets. You are not going to always deserve the suffering that you get. The lots that we have in life sometimes don't make sense. And this is true of Job. Um, the next thing that we see is this divine counsel. And it's this picture of God, and he's in his heavenly throne room, and there's all these other sons of God. And these are spiritual beings. They're not angels. They're kind of like little gods that have been given throughout the Bible to represent other nations, and they have some power, but they're in full subjection to God himself, the supreme God, Yahweh. And it's from this council of people, of spiritual beings, that the Satan comes forward. And Satan is simply the challenger, the accuser, the one who opposes. It's a verb. And uh, sometimes it's used as a noun throughout the Old Testament. But this is not like Satan they like embodiment of evil. This may just be one of the sons of God that come forward and challenge God's policies. And it's not super important, but that's what we're seeing here. So the Satan, he comes forward, and what is the charge that he makes? He makes the charge that says Job is only following God because God gives him prosperity. Saying, if you take away all the things that make Job prosper and benefit him then he won't follow after you. So basically, this is an attack on God's motives, on God's, uh, or on Job's motives for following God. He's saying Job is only following God because God gives him good things. So this is an attack on what we call the retribution principle. When I say RP, a retribution principle, that means the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. So the challenger is saying is like, God, by you instituting this principle, you're actually undermining people's righteousness because they only follow you because they want good things. They don't follow you for righteousness' sake. Job just follows you because you make his life good. So this is the challenge that the Satan is bringing to God. And it's an attack on what Proverbs set up as the moral logic of the universe, the retribution principle. And then God hands over the challenger to afflict Job. He says, okay, you can afflict Job, take away his possessions, his benefits. We'll see how that goes. So the first thing he attacks is Job's possessions and family. Have you guys ever read this passage? It's pretty depressing. Chapter two, or da-da-da-da-da. No, chapter one. Now there was a day. This all happens in a day. When Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen and the plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and and the Sabians fell upon them, took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another person in the room. They said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. Can you imagine if you saw that? You're just standing in the field, boom, fire from heaven, all your sheep are gone. That's just upsetting. Burned up the sheep and the servants, oh, the servants also died, that would probably be more sad, and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another person in the room and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels, took them, struck them down, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another person came in. Can you just imagine Job in this situation? He's just like trying to compute all of this bad news, and it just keeps piling on. And he goes, uh, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job's possessions, his servants, his family have been taken away from him. And this is how Job reacts. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. A very ecclesiastic-like statement. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, all this happens, and Job responds with accepting it. It, You know, sometimes the translations say, like, worship, but the worship is a little um, hazy, and it's not, it's just the verb to bow down, which could be just a sign that he's just accepting it. He's like, this is what happened. He's not necessarily blessing God, because the same word for bless in Hebrew can also be curse. So there's some debate as to whether or not it could be cursing God or blessing God. Um, But we also saw uh, the second time um, God allows the challenger to actually attack Job's body and gets all these boils on his skin. And then his wife comes and says, why don't you just bless God or curse God and die? And Job again says, no, I'm not going to do that. So Job has some hint of accepting what is going on, but he's, we already see start of the grumblings of he doesn't understand why this is happening. He's righteous. There's no reason this should happen. So this is when Job's three good buddies enter the scene. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Great options for you to name your kids one day. Uh, I like Zophar. That's, that's like a good cat name, you know. Zophar, or maybe not, Um, but what's important to see about these people, and this is going to be very important, like if you ever just chose to like open up Job one day in the middle and start reading, which I don't suggest you do, like don't just choose a random passage, Um, this is very important to know that these people are not saying things that are correct. Like the Bible is not strained to show you that these are true statements these people are making. These people, the three friends, are actually representative of the common misunderstandings that were very popular in Job's day in the ancient Near East. They're functioning with a wrong understanding of how God works in the world. And so it's very important that you, you know that these people are not presenting something that's good or true. You have to remember that. And generally speaking... What we see is that each of these friends kind of offer a different perspective on um, on Job's situation. Can you click the slides for me? I think I lost it. No, it works. Okay, good. So basically, this is kind of the perspectives that they bring. Eliphaz, he's kind of a mystic. He always draws from his experiences. He's like, "Oh, that doesn't seem right. I've experienced life this way." Bildad, he's more of a traditionalist. He's saying, "This is what I've heard. This is true." This is what you need to do. Um, and Zophar is a rationalist. He, he keeps employing a lot of these logical schemes. He says, well, if this is true and that is true, then and this is your situation, then this is all there is for you, bud. And actually, Zophar kind of disappears from the dialogues, which shows that the more you rationalize the situation, the quicker you're just not gonna be able to understand. And you kind of, rationalism fails the quickest. If you just try to rationalize, the pain that you're going through, the more you just try and say, like, why is this happening? What's the reason for this? How does this make any logical sense? The quicker it's just not going to make sense to you. So, um, but the important thing here, these people are not propped up as, as having the correct view of things, okay? So, this leads us into the large, major, poetic part of the book, of Job. Most of the book is this poetry, and it's very dense, very difficult Hebrew poetry. Um, there's a lot of, like, difficulty in translating what exactly is said here, because Job is probably one of the oldest books in the Bible that was ever written. They don't know at the time that it was written exactly, but it's very old, and it's very difficult to understand. But the major movement of what v- of what we see here is this dialogue between Job and his friends. So we'll look at these cycles and and things like that. But in the first chapter, we see Job's opening lament. He curses the day of his birth. He wishes that he'd never been born. Expresses how miserable he is. And basically, he's just in a very, very low state. He is suffering, and he's feeling the weight of that in a very intense way. And we already see that he he begins to ask, like, the why questions. Like, what is the reason for this? This doesn't make any sense. Why is this happening? And uh, that then launches into what we're going to call these dialogue cycles, okay? And I think that's the best way for you to understand it, is that these cycles of dialogue, where Eliphaz will speak, then Job will speak, then Bildad will speak, and Job will respond, and then Zophar will speak, and Job will respond again. It's just this cycle of dialogue. But this is the overview Of what we see. Okay? And this is going to be the important thing and then we can start to get into more practical stuff. But basically the argument is this. One of three things is at fault in Job's situation. Either God is not just, the retribution principle, the moral logic of the universe, is wrong or it's at fault, or Job is not righteous. One of those three things is at fault. What we're going to see with Job's friends is that they attack Job's righteousness. They say, God is just. The retribution principle, the fact that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer, is locked. Like, that's how the world works. So what they do is they continually try to find fault with Job's righteousness. They're, they're basically going to say, there's something you're doing wrong. There's some reason. And that reason has to tie somehow into your wickedness. And so that's the major overview of what these dialogues are doing. And Job, how he responds consistently, is, he questions God allowing the righteousness to allowing the righteous to suffer. So he says, he's kind of questioning God's justice. He's attacking God's policy of allowing the righteous to suffer. So if you kind of think of like the triangle as an argument, it's either God's justice, the retribution principle or Job's righteousness that is at fault. Job's friends are going to attack Job's righteousness. Job is going to just cling to the fact that maybe God isn't just, and that's where uh, it leads to God's interjection. So, the first cycle of dialogues, you see in the first four to 14 chapters, um, that's kind of the order of how it happens. And Job's friends, they really focus on the fact that the righteous prosper continually they're reinforcing this whole fact that God will allow the righteous to prosper. So they're pleading with Job. They're like, return to righteousness so that you can be restored, so that your benefits can be restored to you. And Job's like, no, I am righteous. I am the way I'm supposed to be, and I'm living an upright life. I'm blameless. And so he questions God's justice. And this is a key thing. He always values Job He always values his righteousness over his prosperity. And this is in direct contrast to what the challenger said in the prologue. Remember Hasatan, he's like, he only only follows you, Job only follows you because you give him good things. And continually, throughout these dialogues, it shows that Job is not after just getting things and being restored. He's after having his righteousness vindicated or justified. So that's a very important point. The challenger's... Claim against Job is not true. Cycle two, what we see um, is Job's friends emphasizing the fate of the wicked. They're saying, if you're wicked, the the suffering that comes to you is not going to be good. It, It continues to fall on wicked people. So they seek to just humiliate Job. They're like, you're just wicked. This is proving that you're wicked. Trying to get him to confess to his wrongdoing. And Job again, he's like, no, I am righteous. And so something must be up with God's justice. I don't understand how I can be righteous, how the world should work where if I'm righteous, I should prosper. Then that means that God's justice is at fault. So then we have cycle three. And finally, Job's friends are just basically like, okay, you've done something wrong. They start just fishing for things that Job has done. They're like, have you done this? Have you stolen? Have you cheated some people out of stuff? It's okay. Like, admit it. It's all right. And they're just looking for something to pin on Job to justify his suffering. And again, Job hold fast, holds fast to his integrity and claim to righteousness. This is what he says. Far be it from me to say that you, my friends, are right, meaning you're not right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me. For any of my days. So, again, this is the overview of what has occurred in these first few dialogues. Job's friends have accused him of not being righteous. Job has upheld that he is righteous. So, that means there's something up with God's justice. Maybe God isn't just. And that's where we have this um, interlude or kind of this interjection of a hymn of wisdom. And it's very important that it comes at this point. Because it shows that what's been presented so far is not correct. All these chapters of dialogue and opinions being raised and perspectives, these aren't true. And so this is what the hymn says. It's probably the narrator of the book putting this in there to clarify. And it affirms that Job's friends are wrong in what they're saying. And it upholds Job's view of righteousness, saying that righteousness is linked to the fear of the Lord... But it also reminds the reader that the fear of the Lord is something that is only the product of wisdom. So this then launches into another character who shows up. A guy named Elihu. And so of Job's friends, this guy Elihu, he's this young, and he's kind of angry. He's kind of bitter. And he shows up and he's like, all these friends of yours have spoken wrong but Elihu is going to give kind of a more nuanced, a more sophisticated argument that probably reflects more of how Israel thought about this situation. But this contains um, a lot of what uh, Israel would think about. First, oh yes, Job has his closing words, okay? I forgot about this. So Job finally makes his kind of closing argument against God. He charges God that it's a poor policy for him to allow righteous people to suffer. So this is important. You have the challenger, the Satan, who's saying, God, it's a poor policy for you to benefit the wicked to sh- or to, to benefit the righteous. Saying it's bad for you to just give prosperity to righteous people because that compromises their motives. And Job Job, Job says it's a bad policy for you to, uh, to uh, inflict suffering on the righteous. So, he, so those are the ch- two charges against God. You have the challenger saying it's bad for the righteous to have benefits, and you have Job saying it's bad for the righteous to suffer. So this is the questioning of God's policies. God is on trial here. And then the final chapter shows that he has claimed his innocence until the end. He, like, goes through all these things. He's like, I'm innocent of this, innocent of this, innocent of that. And Job um, demonstrates that his righteousness is more important than God's reputation. And that's kind of the one major thing that God is going to level against Job. Is He said, you took your righteousness more seriously than you took my justice and my reputation. And that's where, where uh, God is going to correct Job as we see in the last final speeches. So then Elihu shows up. He's this sophisticated, raging, angry young man. Um, and he defends the, the, the um, retribution principle, the moral logic of the universe, as in Proverbs, and God's justice. But he has this very important view of suffering. He says, Job, you may not have suffered for things that you did or any wrongdoing you committed, but maybe God's inflicting suffering on you because you're about to commit a sin or you're about to have potential sin in your life. So it's like a hidden, deeper justice. And this reflects a lot of how we try to understand God's working in the world. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe we just don't understand why that happened, but we know there's a good reason why it happened. And this is kind of an example of Elihu and what he does. So Elihu believes that Job is being too self-righteous in regards to Um, understanding his situation, and he's actually correct in that. That's what God says is wrong with Job. Job is being very self-righteous about um, how he responds to this. But, I think I have a slide for this. Yeah. While Elihu is correct in some of his statements, he's still wrong in judging Job's motives, because he can't determine Job's motivations. So this speech of Elihu, it's very important. It shows that Job is at fault, and his response to suffering is not ideal. Okay, that's very important. Job is not a character you're supposed to emulate. He's not responding in the right way. And this part of Scripture shows us that. Furthermore, it shows us that even this kind of sophisticated, very smart, intellectual rationalization of why this has happened to Job is not good enough. It's still on the basis... Of the retribution principle. It's still lacking in really um, doing what the book wants to do. So we have Elihu, and we have Job's final words, and this is what we see. The Lord shows up. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and this is like a storm. Job, uh, the storm and the whirlwind was often a sign of God's wrath. So God is not happy He's not just like, you know, sliding into the situation like, hey guys, can I say something? No, he's very, very upset. His reputation has been attacked and he has come to correct it in a very kind of wrathful, indignant way. And and he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Can you imagine if God said that to you? Dress for action like a man. Get up. Wake up. And I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay? And I want you to answer them. And so basically God is going to grill Job. And he's going to grill Job on how he can possibly understand the situation. Okay? So we see how God answers. And again, this is a reminder The conclusion of the book is about God defending his policies and how he works in the world. And um, God's speeches will give a solution that's needed. We won't get into the details of the solution. But basically, he shows that the way they've been answering this question is too simplistic. You can't simply apply logic or simply kind of draw up scenarios that make sense of what's happened. Injustice and suffering doesn't work like that. We try to make it work like that, but it doesn't. So, one of the key things that he uh, unveils in this is that we can't even understand really how this world works. We don't understand the complexities of our own existence and of our own environments. How are we going to understand why God, the creator of all those things, all those complexities, is working? And so, we see uh, God make... Two main speeches. The first speech tells Job how he should think about the world, that God has ordered uh, the universe by his wisdom, maintaining roles and functions in all of this cosmic order. And the second speech is God tells Job how he should think about God's policies, God's role, and the posture that we should take to the world. He uses these crazy, like, cosmic beasts called the behemoths and the leviathan. These were not dinosaurs, okay? A lot of people try and, like, talk about what? No, they probably weren't real. These were, like, cosmic kind of mythological beasts that were involved in the creation and, like, a lot of cool, crazy accounts in the ancient Near East. But these were not dinosaurs. Don't let anyone tell you that this was a dinosaur or a dragon or anything like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Man! dinosaurs. But uh, basically, these beasts were a lot bigger and more powerful than simply guys that were really strong animals. These were supposed to be like elements of how God has created the world. And so he says, look, Job, you can't even harness the power of these beasts. How can you harness your understanding of me? And so that's how God launches into his defense, and then it ends. That's how Job, uh, that's how job God, see, you can say God and Job. Um, that's how God answers Job. And think about how that answer actually doesn't provide an answer. God doesn't tell Job, hey, okay, what you didn't know is there was this little scenario beforehand had a meeting with my counsel, and we decided we're going to inflict you to kind of test you. That's not what God does. God continually drives Job to not consider justice in terms of his own understanding. He drives Job to consider how great, how powerful, and how how God is just so wise beyond his short-sighted, limited perspective. And that's what he wants Job to see, that God's wisdom is the operating force of the universe, not his, not necessarily his justice. So we see Job's response. His first response is just he's in odd silence. This is what he says. Answer the Lord, he says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice but I will proceed no further. So that's his first response. He's just in awe of what God has said and how marvelous and how wise and powerful he is. And his second response is Job recanting and repenting. So again, this is, Job was wrong in what he was doing and how he was responding to suffering. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job recants, repents, and then we get this nice story at the end. Where Job is restored, he gets like double everything that he had, and he, now listen, this doesn't erase the loss, right? Just having more kids is what happens to Job, and he's like, there's this weird line, it talks about how Job had these daughters, and they were like really pretty, they're like the prettiest in the land. It's like, that doesn't make up for the fact that he like lost children, he still has that pain, he still has that suffering, that suffering still exists, that pain is still real. So this isn't just wrapping up Job's pain and Job's suffering, right? So why is this at the end of the book? It's because it's showing that God's policies are still intact and that they are still approvable. God can do what he wants. God is operating under his wisdom. That is what the epilogue is showing you. So it shows that prosperity is not simply a reward for righteousness. It is a gift of God. That's one of the main points of the book of Job. That things don't just go well with you because you're righteous. And you don't just suffer because you're wicked. Sometimes there's injustice in this world. That's what Job is saying. Not that there's always a reason or a why behind your injustice, but that sometimes injustice happens. And when you experience prosperity, that's a gift from God. So, how should we see this contributing to the wisdom literature. How to live the good life. Basically two important things. Number one, God's wisdom is the operating force of the universe. It is God's decisions, God's um, uh, wisdom that basically causes the world to go round. Not the moral logic of the universe as in Proverbs, the RP, but God's wisdom. And while justice reflects God's character, This world still has injustice in it, something that's been subjected to it um, by sin. And so because of this, number two, we can trust that God is wise and just. And justice is not something that we're simply promised in this world. Uh, Romans 8 says the world was subjected to the futility of the world, of, of our sin, And so there is still a world in process, basically. Just like you as a Christian are in process, this world is still in process to being revitalized and restored. So there's still injustice in this world. That's a key thing that Job is showing us. So the good news about that is is that God promises to fully reorder the world and bring everything into coherence in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's already started this through Jesus, which if you want to talk about injustice, injustice is Jesus himself dying for our sin and then giving us righteousness. So just think about that. Injustice has played an important part in the world. Injustice is woven into the fabric of how God has allowed this world to operate. And we see that climactically in Jesus on the cross because it's only in that unjust action of Jesus dying for your sin, my sin, that we have been brought into the family of God. We can be called the people of God. So don't take injustice, the fact that you experience suffering, the fact that things don't make sense, as a sign that God's not in control or God's not wise. We can still trust Him. So, um, how to live the good life, based off of the three books how would you sum- summarize how to live the good life? Yeah, I, w- I won't spare us any more time, but how does the wisdom literature call us to live the good life? Basically, we see every book affirming this, to fear God and keep his commandments. We, uh, we didn't realize it, but Proverbs gave us the answer. Now, that answer is loaded with a lot to unpack, right? There's more to just... Um, fearing God and keeping his commandments than just, like, knowing about God and doing all these things and expecting prosperity. And this is where the other books of the old, of the wisdom literature, give us an important perspective in all of this. Goodness gracious. So, these this is uh, kind of the best way I think about it is fear God and keep, keep His commandments. That's how you will live a good life. If you have a healthy respect for being a creature in the Creator's universe, and you recognize that He has the right to define good and evil, right? So that's how, if you want to live a good life, you respect God as the person and the being that in His infinite wisdom has defined good and evil for us. But there's other ways to help us do that. And I would say Proverbs It's calling you to seek and value wisdom, to seek and value those things, to be intentional about pursuing that track of life. Don't simply just slip into the monotonous flow of life, but actually seek and value wisdom. Ecclesiastes wants you to embrace your mortality and enjoy life. You should know that you're going to die one day, that life is out of your control. But also at the same time, knowing that God is in control should give you reason to enjoy life. Like today, just go out when, you, when you're going out with uh, your family to lunch or something. Just like enjoy that moment. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the conversation. Enjoy the laughter. Just enjoy the football you're going to watch this afternoon. Enjoy a nap. Like Ecclesiastes just like harness life. It's kind of like the carpe diem, like seize the day because it's a gift from God. That's one way you live the good life. And then lastly, what Job really teaches us about living the good life is to trust God when we don't understand. Trust God when you don't understand. Because there's going to be things in life you don't understand. There's going to be injustices in life that you do not, that you cannot make sense of. There's suffering that comes our way that, guys, it's just awful, and the best thing in life is not simply that you understand all of these things, but that you trust God within those things. And what we see, and I, I had a slide earlier, I forgot where it went, but um, Jesus, he's asked twice about injustice or about suffering that happens. I think it's in John 9 and Luke 13. He's basically, the, the Pharisees come up to him and say, uh, Jesus, why was this person born blind? Like, why did this happen? Or this temple fell on people, or this building fell on people. And, he sa- and they're asking Jesus, like, why did this bad thing happen? And continually, what Jesus does is he says to look forward to the purpose for, w- for what had happened. So, constantly, Jesus says, don't think about why and the causes and the reasons for your suffering. Look for the purpose in your pain, how you can redeem it for the future. What is God teaching you right now to mold you and shape you? And that's, that only happens if you trust God. If you trust that God's in control, that He is operating the world through His wisdom, then you can find a purpose in your pain to actually lead you to be more in line with the good life. And what we know to be that as Christians is that that leads us to be more like Jesus. So, really good book. Take it away. Um, slip this outline in your Bible. Um, Try and you know go through some of the crazy poetry stuff. Hopefully, this has helped you in kind of navigating one of the most difficult genres in the Bible. Wisdom literature is really difficult, but hopefully, you kind of just have like a landing spot. So now that like you can be confident, it's like oh yeah, I can like dive into some Ecclesiastes today. It's raining outside. Like it's beautiful.